Scripture reading this morning will be Ephesians chapter 3, 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's good to see you this morning. I know we've got a number of visitors with us. We're really glad that you've come to be a part of our worship today. One week from today, next Sunday, mark your calendars if you haven't already done so. We're going to have a special singing workshop here at Katy. It's going to start at 9 a.m. So during Bible class time, we'll have Brother Andy Baker from the Graber Road Congregation. Uh, Andy has a master's degree in music, and he's a gospel preacher and just an all-around talented guy. I'm not just saying that because he's my brother. But he, he is going to be with us next Sunday morning, and here in the auditorium, we're going to have a combined class from uh, junior high level all the way up. Um, we'll be in the auditorium at 9 a.m., and uh, Andy will be working with us and, uh, and teaching us about what it means to sing praises to God and how we can how can we can better participate in in worship in song and so he'll be teaching that class and then at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. he'll be preaching the lesson and then there's going to be a special time at 3:30 next Sunday afternoon for those who can make it uh, here in the auditorium as well, uh, where Andy will be working with us, and then finally he'll be preaching our 5 p.m. service as well. Um, there's a little bit of a deal to this. I'm actually going to replace Andy at Graber Road. We're doing a, a, a pulpit swap next Sunday, but my family will be here. I hope that you'll be here as well, and uh, I know you'll be enriched and benefited by, by what he brings to us next Sunday morning. Uh, keep in your mind and in your prayers as well this weekend that um, Eric Winkler, a uh, young man who's grown up here, he is graduating from the Bear Valley Bible Institute of Denver. We have supported him and encouraged him in his studies there, and we look forward to great things in God's kingdom from, from what Eric is able to do. Uh, we're also waiting on our summer intern. He had a little bit of a um, minor accident in, in trying to make his way here. Keep him in your prayers. He's fine. Uh, he hit a deer and so had to turn back and, and is uh, going to be with us later this week, we hope. But uh, K.J. Moore is our summer intern, was planning to be here today, just um, things just didn't work out. He's fine. His car's not quite so fine. He's going to make it, but please keep him in your prayers as well. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning in our study. There's a tendency for Christians, especially today, especially right now, to emphasize Jesus and to de-emphasize the church. There's a tendency for us to talk about the salvation and riches that we have in Christ and talk about how Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. And we have songs to that effect. But to not think about 
the vitality and the essential nature of the New Testament church. And the question we're going to answer with our study this morning is this, what's so great about the church? What is there about the church that is so important that Jesus, the Bible says, gave his life for it? Ephesians 5 verse 25. What is it about the church that is so important that we ought to esteem it highly? Because what I want to do this morning is I want to communicate to you God's vision for the church. Not what I think the church ought to be, not what you maybe think the church ought to be, but what God says the church is. Because God had a vision, had a plan for the church. He's the one that drew the blueprint. He's the architect that made it all happen. And if we don't have God's vision for what the church is and why the church is important, we're going to treat the church in a disdainful way. When you look through the book of Ephesians, I want you to just notice Ephesians is a book that deals with the nature of the church, the church of Christ, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's called the church of Christ in Romans chapter 16, verse 16. It's called the church of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It's called the body of the saved. Over and over through Scripture, you read about this group of people that belong to Jesus, and they're called the church. And so, as you read through Ephesians, look at some of the images that are given. What is the church described as in Ephesians? Look, if you would, just very briefly at Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Look at it in your Bible. What is the church described as being? Ephesians 1, 22 he put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his, what? It's his body. The church is the body of Christ. And so when we think about God's vision for the church, God had a vision of people who have been reconciled and are the body of Christ. How many bodies does Jesus have? He's got one head and one body, the church. But not only that, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, as you think about pictures that you might see of the church in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 19, you are no longer strangers, Ephesians 2, 19 says, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What does the book of Ephesians say about the church? It's God's family. It's God's household. We just sang a song a few moments ago. You're my brother. You're my sister. Take me by the hand. We are family because we belong to Christ together. So there's one body. There's one family. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 4. Ephesians 4 verse 4. There's an emphasis here. It's not just on the fact that the church is the body of Christ, but the fact that there is one body. This is God's vision. When Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, he prayed for unity. He prayed for togetherness of his disciples. John 17, verses 20 through 22. And so Ephesians 4, verse 4 is just an echo of that. There is one body, God's vision, God's plan, God's blueprint. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30, what is the church? It is the bride of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. That's the image that's given. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5, verse 25. It's the bride. 
And so when you think about God's blueprint, when he looks at and talks about the church, it's vital, it's important. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It is one body. It's the household of God. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But think about this. Soldiers don't fight battles all by themselves. They fight together. It is the army of God. That's what the church is. When you put on the breastplate and you take up the shield and the sword, you know, sometimes we had this individualistic idea that I'm going to go and fight the foes. We fight together. That's how armies in ancient times fought. That's how armies today fight. Together. The army of God fighting spiritual warfare, standing up to the deceitfulness of what the devil throws at us. God looks at the church and he says, that's my church. Those are my people. That's my army. What's so great about the church? Look at Ephesians 3 verse 8. Turn in your Bibles there, Ephesians 3 verse 8. And what I want us to do in verses 7 through 13 of this particular chapter is I want us to look at reasons why we ought to esteem the church more highly than most of us probably do. When we stop and think about it, we probably give more honor to Christ and emphasize Christ more than we talk about the church. But when you look at God's vision, God says you ought to esteem the church highly. And the first reason why we ought to esteem the church highly in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13 is this. Because the church, brothers and sisters, is central to the gospel. It's not just some add-on. It's not like when you go and, you know, you buy a car and they they offer you all kinds of add-ons. Would you like this warranty? Would you like this feature? Would you like us to add this particular detail to your car? The church is central to the gospel. It's not just an add-on. And I want us to look, if you will, at verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 3. The apostle Paul is talking about his ministry. You see, he was a servant, and he saw himself as a servant of Christ, but as a servant of the church as well. And as he talked about his ministry, listen to what he says. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, if you translated that literally out of Greek, he would have said, I am the leastest of the saints. Paul had a humble view of himself. I'm not anything. But God has given me everything. And so it was to me. I I can't believe he would do this for me. But God has given me this grace. He's given me this ministry that I should do two things. Number one, that I should preach Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. Do you see that in verse 8? So when Paul talked about his ministry as an apostle, he said, I am nobody, but God gave me the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. You think about evangelism. What are some motives for evangelism? You might give a lot of different answers to that question. What motivates somebody to teach the gospel? But when you look at Ephesians 3 verses 7 and 8, there are two motives that come clear. Motive number one is that revealed truth is a stewardship. Why should you and I teach others about Jesus? Because it's a stewardship. God gave us his truth. He gave us his gospel. And revealed truth is supposed to be shared, not kept to ourselves. And the second motive for evangelism is this. 
Because Jesus Christ enriches people who come to him. Nobody who came to Christ ever became poorer as a result, not in the ways that really matter. When we become Christians, Jesus enriches us. So what are the unsearchable riches that we find in Christ? Why should we tell others? Because we want others to be enriched in Christ. What are these unsearchable riches? Ephesians tells you it's forgiveness of sins, for example, Ephesians 1 verse 7. It's the fact that God raises us spiritually from the dead when we become Christians, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. It's the fact that God reconciles us into one body, into his household, into his kingdom, into his spiritual temple, Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 20. We become rich in Christ. And so Paul says, when I went around preaching, I preached Christ, his unsearchable riches to people. And so far, we're on board with Paul. That makes sense to me. He preached the gospel. He talked about Jesus and his unsearchable riches. But then look at verse 9. Paul didn't just preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says it another way in verse 9. In verse 9 of Ephesians 3, he says, And I preached to make all see what is the, my translation has fellowship, better translation is plan, What is the plan of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things? You know what that means in verse 9? It means that Jesus is part of the gospel, but the church is central to the gospel as well. In other words, Paul said, I preached Christ, verse 8, the unsearchable riches, and I preached the plan of the mystery, verse 9. I preached about the church. How do you know when he says that phrase, plan of the mystery? How do you know he's talking about the church there? Because of what he just said. If you're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 4. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. I've written down my understanding of the gospel so that you may understand the mystery, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. A mystery is something that was hidden and has now been revealed. Well, what is this mystery, Paul? What have you been talking to people about he tells you in verse 6 the content of the mystery in Ephesians 3 verse 6 is this that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel so what's Paul going around and preaching he's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and he's preaching about how we are fellow heirs Jews and Gentiles together in the body Ephesians 3, verse 6, and Ephesians 3, verse 9, to make everybody see what is the plan of the mystery which was hidden but now has been revealed through God who created all things. So you ask Paul, what did you preach? I preached Christ and I preached the church because the blueprint that God has set for the church was hidden at one time and now it's been revealed through the gospel. We are too individualistic in the way that we think about salvation. We think about how Jesus died for me, and we think about how Jesus loves me, and we use passages like Galatians 2 verse 20, which is a legitimate passage to use. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, but we don't talk enough, probably, most of us, in our gospel presentations about the plan of the mystery. We don't talk enough about the church. 
And we leave people with the impression, and we sometimes ourselves may have this impression, that I can have one without the other, that I can be a Christian without the church, or that I can be faithful to God without being a part of and being involved in the church. And Paul says, my ministry as an apostle was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to preach the plan of the mystery which has been revealed through Christ Jesus. And so salvation, brothers and sisters, is not just individual. It has to do with other people horizontally. It's not just about our redemption, but it's about reconciliation. It's about people loving each other and learning to work together. That's what God's blueprint teaches. It's not just about my atonement, but about my adoption into a family, because that's what happens when you're baptized. You are adopted into the family of God. It's the new birth, John 3, verse 5. That's what baptism is. And what we are now is part of a family. And we live as a family and we love each other as a family and we work together as a family and we sometimes get on each other's nerves like a family does. And when we work those things out, God is shaping us and helping to chip away at our rough edges because that's what God's plan teaches us to do. It's not just about my personal freedom from sin. Thank God that he forgives sin and thank God that he cleanses us, but it's about being family in Christ. Paul said, my ministry was not just preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, but in doing that, it was making all to see that the Jews and the Gentiles have now been reconciled into one body through the cross. And when you and I have a Bible study with somebody And when we talk to people about the gospel, we better make sure that we're speaking about the same kinds of things that Paul did. It's not just about you and about your personal salvation from sin. It's about you and being adopted into a family. And the role that the church plays in our growth and our development and in our spiritual life. Paul preached about those things. And we do well to preach about those things as well. The church is not an afterthought. And it's not just an add-on, like buying a car and, hey, this feature would be nice. The church is central to the gospel. You can't preach the gospel without talking about the church, not in its fullness. Notice, secondly, then, what is so great about the church? It's central to the gospel, yes, verses 8 and 9, but there's even more. Look at verse 10. The church displays God's manifold wisdom. It displays God's manifold wisdom. When I was in elementary school, we sometimes had to make dioramas. You know what that word means, diorama? Basically what it means to an elementary school kid is you get a shoebox and you cut off the top. And then you display something that you've been learning about or something that you've been studying. So, for example, in my fourth grade class, we studied Japanese culture. And we had to make a diorama. And so I made a diorama of a Japanese uh, home and, and where people would put their shoes when they went into the, and all those kinds of things. And so it was a display of the things I'd been learning. It was visual. It was something that I didn't write it down. I just built a construction. And that's what God is saying about the church here. The church is like a diorama of God's manifold wisdom. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, watch this, by the church to the principalities and powers 
in the heavenly places. So the church is this display of God's wisdom. And notice that the word is manifold wisdom. The word means many-sided, or it can mean many-colored. As a matter of fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when Joseph received a coat of many colors, Genesis 37 verse 3, same Greek word was used. Genesis 37 verse 3, same Greek word used as what we read in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Manifold colors. Multicolored. Why does Paul call the church the manifold wisdom of God? Well, when you look at what he's been saying through the book of Ephesians, he's been talking about this blending of Gentiles and Jews into one body. He's been talking about that repeatedly through Ephesians. And what the Bible teaches about the church then is that the church is manifold in its makeup. It is multinational. On the day of Pentecost, there were people from every nation under heaven, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2. It is multi-ethnic. It is multicultural. It is multilingual. As a matter of fact, you read in other passages in Scripture about the makeup of the church, and you read things like this, Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked... And behold, John says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, multinational, from all tribes and all peoples, multi-ethnic, multicultural, and all languages, multilingual, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What is the church, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10? It is the manifold wisdom of God on display. The fact that God can take all these people from different walks of life, from different backgrounds, who speak different languages from different nations, and blend them into one family, the world focuses on what makes us different. The world focuses on what makes us unique, what makes me and sets me apart from other people. The church teaches us to focus on what we have in common. What is there that makes us family? It's the fact that Christ is our Savior. It's the fact that His blood is our blood. It's the fact that we share fellowship through what he's done for us. First John chapter 1 verse 7. God's manifold wisdom is on display through the church. And brothers and sisters and friends, when we think about what the church is, we are to have a high view of the church here at Katy. Because what we want to be is we want to be a living diorama of the manifold wisdom of God. Multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational, multilingual. To the degree that we do that, we are fulfilling and carrying out God's vision for what the church is to be. But then here's a question. As you read on in chapter 3, verse 10, there's kind of a curious statement. The Bible says this diorama, this, this, this display of the church, who is the audience? Who is it that's going to come by and look at this display and say, wow, that's astounding, that's amazing. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 10. Who's the audience that is intended to see? We could say, well, the world. The world ought to see that the church. That's all true, but that's not what Ephesians 3.10 says. Ephesians 3.10 says that the audience is, depending on your translation, the rulers or principalities, the authorities or powers, depending on your translation, in the heavenly places. You know who he's talking about? Angels. 
angelic beings. It is the angels who desire to look into God's salvation. It is the angels who want to see what God has had planned from eternity past. It's the angels who rejoiced when Jesus was born because they're finally starting to see a glimmer, a glimpse of what the plan is. And now in the diorama of the church, the display of what the church is, the angels look at that and they say, how great God is that he drew such a blueprint that he could unite mankind in Christ. And the angels are the ones that see the great manifold wisdom of God on display, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10. Prove it. How do you know those are angels? I know they're angels because Ephesians 6, verse 12 says this. Not only angels, but angelic beings. The Bible says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and here are the same terms, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What he's saying is, as we live our lives, there is an unseen realm in which others are watching us. Spiritual forces are watching us. And they're doing battle with us in some cases. And they're watching what the church is. And they're giving glory to God because of who the church is. And because of what it says about God's manifold wisdom. That's what the passage is teaching in Ephesians 6, verse 10. So we're a living diorama of the manifold wisdom of God for the angels and angelic powers, cosmic powers in the present darkness to watch and to see and to marvel at who God is and how wise he is. I think this is really astounding because, you know, we think about the church and we're just thinking about the here and now. We're thinking about what we see. And the Apostle Paul says, no, the church is about a lot of the things that we don't see. Under this point, think about the media that God uses to communicate. When it comes to the gospel, the media God uses to communicate, before we leave this point on verse 10, God directly revealed the gospel to men like Paul. Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 5. God has not done that with you and me. God has not spoken directly to you in a miraculous way to reveal the gospel to you. He did with Paul. And Paul took that gospel and he preached it and he wrote it down so that we can know what God said. And we can have a faithful record of what God told men like Paul and Peter and Andrew and James and others. Apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2 verse 20. So God used direct revelation from heaven to men. And then the gospel now is being made known through the preaching of Scripture when we talk about the Word of God, when we take the revelation that has been written down and we do what we're doing right now and we communicate that to others, the gospel, God's Word, is being communicated through me to all of you to the degree that I talk about what's in the Scripture and I share what the Scriptures say. You're hearing God's Word. And then the church becomes the visual model of the gospel at work, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10. We hear the word, we obey the word, and then we become a divine display to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so the gospel goes forth from heaven to earth. God reveals it to men. People accept it and obey it. And the church displays God's wisdom back to heaven again. The gospel makes the round trip from heaven to earth. And then it's revealed back to the angelic powers what God's manifold wisdom was all about. Is the gospel important? 
it's critically important. It's so important that God would do all of that. Should it be important to you and me? And should the church as the center of the gospel, should that be important to you and me? The apostle Paul would say there's nothing more important. Christ and his church. That's what Paul preached in his ministry. And that's what displays God's manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. But wait, there's even more. Look at verse 11. The church is the focus, the focal point, the center of history itself. Verse 11 says, talking about the church, according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, Paul says, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul was suffering. He was in prison. And he says, I want you to understand that what I'm suffering for, I'm suffering for the church. This is the very focus of history itself. This is the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus. The church is the focus of history. That's the message. When you think about what Paul is saying, There is a plan, a blueprint that was drawn in eternity past. God drew it. We don't make up the church because we decided, hey, let's get together and be the church. We are following God's plan. And it's important for us to listen to what he says about the church and who belongs to the church and what the church is to do and how the church is to be organized and how we're to function together and what we are to do in the community and what we're to do with one another. We need to listen to God's plan because he drew the plan in eternity past. And that plan, according to verse 5, was not made known in other generations. David and Abraham and Isaiah, they didn't know about the church in the way that you know about the church. It had not been revealed yet what God was going to do in Christ. A group like this did not exist in Isaiah's day, not in the way that we exist, because we exist and we love each other because of what Jesus has done for us. That wasn't true in the days of Isaiah. That wasn't a reality yet. And then the Bible says that the plan is now realized in Christ. Verse 11, the church is the focus of history. I read a lot of history. I enjoy reading books about history. There's a difference between what secular historians teach and what God teaches about history. I want to show you the difference very quickly. In secular history, the focus is on VIPs, very important people. Thomas Edison, Demosthenes, you name it, VIPs. The focus is on emperors and on kings and how they made decisions and how they chose poorly or wisely. The emphasis of secular history is upon wars and peace treaties. And if you've ever taken a history class in college, you know that you've got to memorize a lot of dates. When did this war begin? What led to this war? What led to the peace that that ended this particular war? That's what secular history focuses on. Maps and empires. Who controls what territory? Who controls what part of the world? Power and conquest. That's secular history. Who's in charge? Who's making the rules? Who's making the decisions? Who's winning and who's losing? That's secular history. But if the church is the very center and the focus of history, because this is what God's been doing all through history, then watch this. In God's history, what history is really all about is about saints or people of faith. People who have humbled themselves and have obeyed God's word. That's where history is really found. 
When we think about God's version of history, it's about sin and redemption. It's about people being lost in the kingdom of Satan and being redeemed and purchased out of that and delivered into the kingdom of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Sin and redemption. That's what's important. That's what's vital about history. Not who wins and loses wars so much. It's about hearts being won for God's glory. Rather than conquest and and, and taking more territory, it's about people turning to God and coming to him in submissive faith and saying, God, I need you to save me. God's history is about submission. It's about obedience to his word. And the church is the focus because when you look at what the church is, Watch this. In the New Testament, what the church is, every Christian is put into the church, Acts 2.47. You can't be a Christian and not be part of the church. It's impossible. In God's blueprint, in God's vision, it's impossible to be a Christ follower, a Christian, and not also be a part of a church. You can't do the same thing, those two things, separately. And so look at what the church is. The church is the saints. The church is those who have been redeemed from their sin. The church is those whose hearts have been won for the glory of God by the gospel. And the church is those who are obedient and submissive to the will of God. It's the focal point, the center of history itself. We don't think highly enough of the church. We talk about Jesus. We talk about redemption and salvation and forgiveness in Jesus but we don't give enough attention biblically to what Scripture says about the greatness of the church. What I want more than anything for us to do here at Katy is this. I want us to prayerfully and thoughtfully rededicate ourselves as a congregation to making God's vision a reality. God set the vision. He drew the blueprint. Our task is to live it out obediently. That's our task. And in order to do that, four suggestions, four things are necessary. We must preach and we must teach about the church. Nobody can get to heaven in a church that was built by men. The reason you can't do that is because men are not the designers of the church. God is. And we need to preach about that and we need to teach about that. It matters. It matters whether we're submitting to everything that God says the church ought to be. It matters. It can't not matter if we're going to be saved. If we're going to be part of this body of Christ that we read about in Ephesians. We've got to preach and teach about it. We must secondly pray for the church. In your personal prayers, do you regularly and thoughtfully pray for the people of God. Not just here, but around the world. We are to pray about the church. Paul did. Ephesians 3, verses 14 and following, right after he finishes this section, he launches into prayer on behalf of the church. We are to third work with the church. I understand that all of us are missionaries in a sense, We go into the world and we carry the light of God around with us and we are maybe the only light that someone may see. We are the only Bible that someone may ever read. We are carriers of God and his message into a lost and dark and dying world. I get that. The Bible teaches that. But you can't stay lit for very long 
when you're not working with and cooperating with the church. You just can't. Void if detached. When we are detached from the people of God, we are not working with and cooperating with the people of God, and we're in a very dangerous place spiritually because the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, the army of God, fights together and lives together. Incidentally, I'll just say this. You may or may not be aware the church here at Katy assembles at other times besides Sunday mornings. We assemble on Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. What do you do on Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m.? We worship and we spend time encouraging one another and edifying one another. We do those things. Why do you do those things? Because we're trying to fulfill and live out God's vision. And that's hard to do with just an hour or so each week. It can be done, but it's hard to do. We need to be together more, not less. We assemble together on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Maybe you're not aware of that. We assemble together on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. It's the middle of the week. And I understand that people work and it's hard to get home and it's hard to get kids dressed and things like that. I understand that. But there are a lot of us that do that. And I would strongly encourage you to be a part of that because when we come together, we edify each other and we're trying to work on this vision that God has set forth, this blueprint for how people are to love each other and get along with one another and glorify God together. We are to work with the church. You can't escape that teaching in Scripture, not in what we've just said, not what Paul teaches. Fourth, we must, if necessary, suffer for the church. You want to make God's vision a reality? I want to tell you something. It is hard to do. It's hard to do because people are wicked and sinful, and there are going to be people who persecute you from without, and there are going to be people who torment you from within. And the Apostle Paul in verse 13 mentions his suffering. He actually mentions his suffering in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3 as well. Notice the chapter begins and ends with suffering. He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's someone who is suffering on behalf of the church. And you, if you try to live the way God wants you to live, you're going to suffer for the church at some point. Because here's the thing. What's best for you and what's best for the church are sometimes two different things. What's best for me personally, what I want to do, what seems good to me, is sometimes very different from what's best for the church. And therefore, when that is a conflict, what's best for me, what's best for the church, guess which one Ephesians 3 says ought to win out? I suffer for the church. What's best for the church ought to be on our hearts and our minds because I'm telling you, that's how God shapes us. That's how he molds us more into the image of Christ. He's working on our rough edges. We must, if necessary, suffer for the church. It's the focus of history. It displays the manifold wisdom of God. The church is central to the gospel. We need, as the people of God, to recover that kind of vision of who the church is and what the church is. Because if we don't, we're going to end up saying and practicing and living things that are as ungodly as they can be. May it never be said of the people at Katy that that happened among us. What's so great about the church? You might make a list of a lot of things, but I guarantee you can't beat God's list. You can't beat what his apostles taught because they saw the blueprint And they've communicated it to us.
Are you here this morning and you want to be a part of this body that we've talked about this morning? You want to be a part of the church that belongs to Jesus because you understand it's central to the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Confess that he is the Lord. He's the king. He's the head. Confess his name and then be baptized. In baptism, you participate in the new birth. You are born into the kingdom. You are added to the church. God's the one who adds us. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?